Alex Marlowe, and this is the Breitbart News Daily Podcast. And at long last, we are releasing my special sit-down with Breitbart News Senior Contributor and Government Accountability Institute President Peter Schweitzer, who's also a number one New York Times bestselling author multiple times over. His latest book, Red Handed, is the book of the year so far, and it's the most comprehensive and important documentation of the American elite's deep ties to communist China that we've seen to date. Uh, in this long-form interview, I talked to Peter about a lot of the details about the American establishment's relationship with the CCP, that you didn't necessarily see on the front pages of Breitbart or hear about on your favorite talk show. This is a deep dive. We get into the details, and Peter is also a delight to listen to. In general, here it is, my big interview with Peter Schweitzer. Roll it. Peter Schweitzer, Red Handed is the book, number one New York Times bestseller, his third in a row, I think. Is that correct? That's right. Very cool. And then the, the, the subtitle, it's very important I read the subtitle for You Know Who, How American Elites Get Rich Helping China Win, which is exactly what's happening. Um, Peter, thanks so much for sitting down with me. This is my favorite thing to do. I have a very cool job as editor-in-chief of Breitbart, but the coolest thing I get to do is sometimes I will go and I will visit a influential intellectual person and try to really go deep into their brain and what they're thinking about. And the timing couldn't be better here because the book's number one right now in the world, which is so cool. And uh, congrats on that. I I want to talk about the reaction to the book a little bit. First, in terms of sales, uh, it it is selling a ridiculous amount of copies. I think it'll probably go on to be your number one. Uh, It's probably on track for that. Are you surprised at all by that, that that many people at this moment really want to dig into a, it's a good read. It really is. It's, it's more of a page turner than I was anticipating. But it's a dense book about China. Like it's yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, you're an author. You know, you you work on a book. You 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 bang away at it yeah. for for months. You do all kinds of research, and you're not quite sure what kind of reception you're going to get because you conceive of it. This book was conceived about two two and a half years ago. Yeah. And then we researched it, and then we wrote it, and and so you don't know what the climate's going to be yeah. like, what's going on politically at the time, what's yeah. in the news cycle. So you don't know. I was cautiously optimistic because I think this is one of those subjects that. that that shouldn't be partisan. Right. It kind of becomes partisan, but it shouldn't be partisan. And I still want to believe, I mean, this is sort of the the, the core of the Breitbart audience, uh, but you want to believe there are people out there that care deeply for their country. This is not some sort of just partisan game. They want the best for the country. They're patriotic. They love their country. And this, I think, is a reflection of that. I think that's what's motivating people to buy this because, look, the leadership class is selling us out. Uh, Democrats, Republicans, Wall Street, Silicon Valley. And um, we need to be alert to it and we need to do something about it. So I'm thrilled at the response that it's getting, and I'm hoping that we can take it to the next stage and actually start getting some action in areas where we can force people to start changing their patterns of behavior. So one of the things that struck me when I was looking at the reaction to it was I wanted to ask you, are, are you evaluate the reaction from the people who are in power? First, let's. I want to go through the establishment media. I want to go through the Republican establishment and the Republican anti-establishment. I want to kind of get your assessment of your week or so, or two weeks now, yeah. after having this conversation into the launch. And, you know, we've done 30, I think I counted 30 articles on Breitbart yeah. so far. Yeah. We'll have more. Uh, it's out there. You've been uh, embraced by Fox, which mm-hmm. I want to ask you about that, which is uh, a pleasant surprise from my vantage point. Mm-hmm. Fox has sometimes been a little bit icy on some of the stuff that goes after the Republican establishment. So good for them. On the, but uh, let's just kind of go through the list. Give me your assessment of where uh, the reaction is. Well, I tell you, it's interesting. The strategy they've employed is 
uh, I think the overall establishment that people named the book is they're just going to ignore it and hope yeah. that it goes away, that it'll have its run for a couple of weeks and then people will forget about it and they'll move on to right. the next shiny object. Um, I think that's a mistake. Uh, but of course, I would say that I'm the author of the book. I think you've got to embrace and have a conversation and explain to the American people why you're doing what you're doing. Yes. But but look, Breitbart has been the tip of the spear. Fox has been fantastic. Uh, Mark Levin, Sean Hannity, yeah. uh, uh, it's you know Maria Bartiromo. It's been remarkable, uh, and they've been quite fearless about it uh, in tr in terms of naming names. Yes. And the thing we have to uh, think about, and I think really applaud Fox for, is like. All these news outlets, they, they, they have parent corporations that have global interests. That can, they can be pressured in all kinds of ways. And Fox has been great on the book yeah. in terms of the rollout. So it's really been Breitbart and Fox, as far as the established media is concerned. I've had conversations with people at some of the big newspapers, some of the big networks. Uh, but, you know, look, they're not going to come out and say it, but they're very interested in this subject. But management at their news outlets does not want to touch this. And yeah. what's weird to me about that, Alex, is I get it. You know, you look at the cover. OK, Joe Biden's on the cover. He sure. is the most powerful man in the world. But this it's, is not a partisan book. It's not. And it's just a, and you go after Republicans, you go after athletes, you go after tech titans who I'm sure think of themselves as nonpartisan. Right. I think differently. Right. Um, <laughs> but the, the, the Biden chapter is the most powerful of all the powerful chapters. And we'll spend a lot of time on that. Uh, but it, it's striking to me, I think your point is so resonant, particularly to me, because I wrote a whole book on the subject called yep. Breaking the News. Yes. I, I, I plug it because Peter plugs it on the front. Peter endorses it on, on, on the front cover. So so we know Peter's behind it. But but that that is the pattern, is that when you deep corporate interest in China, you yes. stop talking about China. Yep. And the establishment media, which has traditionally covered your work, yeah. Not covering this at all. This is the new strategy, is that when a Republican or a conservative comes out with a big book, my book was almost entirely ignored. Mark Levin's book was almost entirely ignored right. by the establishment press. It's, it sold a million hardcover copies. Right. And they're still acting like it doesn't exist. Right. This is the new strategy. This is a total hoax, Peter. Yeah, no, no, that's, that's exactly right. And I mean, as you laid out in your book, the stuff about China and the mainstream media, which had never really been touched on before. Yeah. That's what I think was so powerful about it. And it, it helps explain in part why news organizations like Bloomberg, for example, yeah. or, or ABC News, which is owned by Disney, of course, they've got these massive corporate interests in China. So part of it, I think, is ideological, philosophical. Uh, they feel the need to protect Joe Biden. Uh, they've convinced themselves that, that Trump or people that view the world the way that Trump does are some kind of existential threat to the American Republic, which right. I think is absurd. Uh, and the other motivation, though, beyond ideology is this very real commercial interest. I yes. mean, who wants to be the reporter at ABC News who you know writes something about this or does a story about something like this, and they get called in for somebody at the parent company because right. Disney's getting pressure now from the Chinese, uh, and they're not going to let them open another theme park or whatever. So it's it's an enormous problem, yeah. and and so it's it's interesting. I'm not trying to sort of overplay or exaggerate the point, but the strategy is kind of soft cancel. We're not going. No, I'm I'm doing it for you because yes. because you're this is connects I think very deeply to what has been the subject of my own research and trust me we'll spend the vast majority <laughs> of the time on your research. No, but, it's but, but, but I'm obsessed with this yeah. topic because when Apple News controls so much of the news we read and Apple makes so much of their money in China, right. they're not going to be inclined to, to promote stuff like this reporters who are uh, uh, on this beat. The same thing goes for Google which if they don't have if they're they're in trying to do it 
agree, and they would love to be in China more. Absolutely. And Facebook, the same deal. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg is the ultimate China butt kisser. Uh, just truly shocking and humiliating. Actually, yeah. he, he humiliates himself is, in order is. to suck up to China. Yeah. And these are the people who are the gatekeepers for the news. Right. And it's just very important for people to understand that like, this book is a phenomenon despite all of that working right. against it. Right, exactly. And I think it shows that the American people have a hunger for real hard yeah. exposés. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things we, that we do at Breitbart regularly. Yeah. There are not other news outlets doing it, but they, they have a hunger for this. So much of the news today is sort of this milk toast, um, sort of ridiculous yeah. atmospherics. Uh, and what people want to know is they want to know the people in positions of power, what are they doing? How are they enriching themselves? How are they misleading the American people? And what, what I've done with this book really is I don't use anonymous sources. You know, we have more than a thousand endnotes. Yeah. So it's all there in black and white. And what I tell people is, if you don't believe that Mark Zuckerberg did something or Joe Biden did something, you can actually go to the endnote, find the source and look it up and reconstitute it yourself yeah. and show that it's real. And, and there's real power in that. I, you know, I get cynical sometimes, I don't know if you do, yes. about sort of the flurry of information. Everybody's on TikTok watching six second videos Absolutely. on something. But there is really a hunger for this kind of material, which I think is very exciting. And the media, mainstream media had nothing to do with the success of this I book. had the exact same thought driving in here. I'm largely unknown, unless you're a Breitbart fan, and my book did very well, and Mark Levin's book did insanely well, and, you know, Tucker Carlson had a big book this year, and you had a big book, and there's so many big books, conservative books, and a lot of these are good books, and yeah. even some of the ones you haven't heard of, I, I read a lot of conservative books. It's just something I do. I just, yeah. I love to be able to get that sort of distilled two years of thought of someone right. I'm interested in. It's just, we're so overloaded with podcasts and video and stuff. Exactly. It's great to just, here's what I've been thinking on for 18 months. And, right. and so I, I love, I read probably 30 of them a year, to yeah. be honest with you. Yeah. Uh, but they're good. And yeah. they're, and they're, a lot of them are well-researched. A lot of them are entertaining. And they're substantive. Is there a chance that we're kind of moving into a place where books are mattering uh, again? Now, here's the other thing I would say yeah. is I think that a, a book oftentimes yeah is not the beginning and the end. It, it sort of helps set the tone. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's very important. Yeah. So my hope is with this book, I know certainly with your book, with yeah. Mark Levin's book, it's the beginning of shifting a national right. conversation. And that's vitally important. And I think there's still only certain things that a book can deliver. So if you're gonna do, as you did the expose on all these Chinese ties with these major yeah. media outlets, you can't run a 12,000 word essay. No. It's going to get ignored. And, and, and it'll be boring for anyone who, who picks Correct. up their, their, like who wants to catch up on the news for 20 minutes. Like, Correct. They're not going to get through it. So, no, I think you're right about this. And, and this is something where it, it just, it's heartening to me because it's such an important medium and I'm glad to see right. it doing well. And you're really the man though on the publishing front because this is what you do. I mean, as much as I'm huge fans of so many of the biggest conservative names, but a lot of them have TV and radio presence. Uh, you dedicate your life to books. I mean, that I, is a. I've, I've always loved books. It's always been a huge influence on my life. As you know, as a kid growing up, I mean, I was I was the nerd in high school yeah. who was on the debate team and who was reading Milton Friedman's Free to <laughs> Choose. <laughs> you know, I wasn't getting a lot of dates, Alex. But I, 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 no, I, I gotta say, I had my Free to Choose copy, and I'm pretty sure I the jacket got too damaged because I, yeah. I, I dragged it around too many places. Yeah, it and it's it's always been to me just yeah. a, a great uh, a conveyor belt. Sure. I mean, that kind of 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 information sure. it allows you to really go in depth. So I've always loved books and I think obviously talk radio is enormously important, but I feel like a book can, can not only on itself stand alone, it can yeah. help steer the conversation, move the conversation. So now I think at Breitbart,
Breitbart or other outlets, when they're talking about mainstream media and the coverage of China, they can't help but touch on the themes that you developed in your book. And my hope is it's the same thing, that, yeah. that you're going to start getting acceptance for what America's elites are doing with Beijing, how they're sucking up, how they're selling out, and it will become injected into kind of the body politic, and I think it will. Red-handed again is the book. Peter Schweitzer is the author, good friend of ours, senior contributor at Breitbart, runs Government Accountability Institute. Um, but in terms of the really big things, there are a couple. But I want to talk about this promise, this lie, that if we simply try to inject our culture and our businesses into China, mm -hmm. that China will liberalize and become more like the United States. Right. It appears to me from afar, and now I know for sure, based on reading your book, the exact opposite has happened. Right. Describe this phenomenon, who's behind it, and I'm more interested in the timeline. How yeah. long has this been going on, and when should we have known that this was right. not working? You know, it's a great question. It really, I think, started in the 1990s. Uh, you remember you had Tiananmen Square in 1989. Some 10,000 uh, uh, civilians were massacred by the Chinese military. Uh, China was isolated from the world for a long time, and I think rightfully so. And then you had sort of the, the, the gray beers at the State Departments, uh, at the British Foreign Ministry, and elsewhere around the world say, hey, you know, we need to engage with China, and we need to move China to be more like us. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to give them access to trade, we're going to give them access to technology, they're going to start wearing our blue jeans, yes. they're going to start listening to Kanye West or right. the equivalent of the 1990s. And they will become kind of like Thomas Jefferson. Uh, and you know, look, it's it's a it's a Thomas Jefferson. Maybe I don't know if you would listen to Kanye or not. You as, know, as, as, as our boss or Breitbart Larry says, it'll never work. But then again, it might. <laughs> exactly. You know, and this was you know it was kind of this universal ideal and yeah. appeal. And you know, do I think that that the average person in China yeah. um, has you know some interests and, and some murmurings in these things? Absolutely. The problem is you've got this thing called the Chinese Communist Party, about a hundred million members that rule the country with an iron fist, who weren't about to give up political power. But you had this consensus yes. evolve. It was the Clinton administration, the George W. Bush administration, Barack Obama. Uh, everybody basically bought into it on Capitol Hill, Republicans and Democrats. Democrats. And that became the consensus point. Right. And the problem is, Alex, that every time China did something good, great, we need more engagement. Anytime China did something bad, we need more engagement. Right. Yes. So it became this ridiculous default position. And the promise absolutely failed because yeah. you had President Xi come to power and he rules with an iron fist and he has really turned China to its most repressive situation in decades. Yeah. And it's only getting worse. They've also become more aggressive. Uh, but I think they've also convinced some people, uh, particularly the Wall Street types, that they've taken, that Xi Jinping has taken people out of true abject poverty by the hundreds of millions and into sort of like right. a working poor level. Right. And not something that would reach the standards uh, that we have for ourselves in the West. Right. But if you have this sort of condescending approach that so many of the American elite have, that you think that maybe because of that, you should... Uh, not take the oppression as seriously. Yeah, no, I, I think you're exactly right. I mean, you know, first of all, this notion that it's the Chinese Communist Party or the government that pulled these people out of poverty is ridiculous. It's, it's to the extent that they've allowed free market reforms. Sure. Um, but and, and who gets the credit for that? Is it is it Deng Xiaoping? It's, it's basically Deng Xiaoping is the one that opened up the market. And what they did was they moved from a Marxist-Leninist system yeah. to a market Leninist system. 
that's really what, what they've done. You know, so you, you have uh, state capitalism yeah. and you have markets, but it's still a Leninist system. It's, it's Vladimir Lenin. And by the way, you know, when people say to me, well, you have to understand, you know, China's culture, you know, they're not necessarily going to take a Western approach. That's hogwash. I mean, Marx was not born in Shanghai. Lenin was not born in Shanghai. These are Western ideas. This dictatorial regime that is leading China is not a reflection of China's past. It's a reflection of this communist ideology. And that's what rules with an iron fist. And this notion that it's the CCP that pulled them out of poverty, Look back to, you know, 1949 when the CCP took power in China. Uh, at that same time, Japan was in shambles. They had just lost the war. Uh, Japan was an advanced country by the 1970s. China is becoming an advanced country now. They're way behind where they could have been had they been an open, thriving society like Japan. So in my mind, this notion that the CCP somehow should get, you know, flowers because of what right. they did is, is absolutely absurd. And this is where I feel like we're lying to ourselves to some degree, or maybe we're, we're lying to everyone in general. But I think that is the, ma the attitude, that is the per pervasive attitude in the tech and finance sectors in particular yeah. in the United States. And it has allowed us to turn a blind eye, particularly with the climate. All, all of these people in these sectors think that the climate is the most important issue facing us. Right. And yet they're content for China to pollute more over right. the next decade. Right. Right. China can increase their right. pollution. They, they don't even have to cap it where they are right. and you know try to rein it in slower than we're reining it in. Now, no, they're allowed to increase. It just shows you that they're they're full of crap. It's it's absurd. I yeah. mean, that's the rationale that now Nancy Pelosi, John Kerry, yes. a whole host of people. We've got to be able to cooperate with China on climate, so we can't bring up the Uyghurs. I mean, Nancy Pelosi even said, "Yes, they're committing genocide, right. but we have this more important issue we have to deal with." And you're quite right when you look at where our cooperation with Beijing has brought us on these issues related to carbon emissions and climate. China's not curtailing anything. In fact, last year, they produced more new coal power plants than the entire country of Australia. Sure. And yet a guy like John Podesta, you know, uh, who, who's been very active in the climate change, goes after Australia and praises China. I mean, it's the most absurd so, thing and, you and can this imagine. Is what doing here, and as someone who, you know, I feel like is it has a deep understanding of the sort of Trump base. Uh, I know a lot of them are uh, very uh, are, are very jaded by how the establishment media and uh, really both establishment political parties were so condescending to them for so yeah. long and did nothing to court them and only was hysterical about their disagreements right. as if you're a bad person or you're a racist or something because you have a different way to view the world. And yet with China, literal communists, that we have to treat them with kid gloves, we have to be very careful not to offend right. them. Right. Obviously, this is about business. This is about money. And this is where your research comes in. Yeah, I think I think it is follow the money. I mean, that's kind of what we do at the Government Accountability Institute and what I've done with a lot of these yeah. books. I, I agree with you. A lot of it's follow the money, but you have to also wrestle with the point that a guy like Bill Gates is worth $100 billion. Yeah. Does he really crave and desire more money? Um, you know, I don't know. Maybe he does. I do think money is a big part of it, especially when you're talking about politicians. I also think, though, that there's, with some of these tech titans and the Wall Street oligarchs, 
there's this uh, admiration they have for the efficiency of dictatorship. Yes. So they would not come out and say that they're Marxists. They wouldn't even come out and say that they're supportive of dictatorships. Right. But they are. They, they praise the fact that stuff gets done. I mean, the, the, there's a, a, a Wall Street guy from uh, Goldman Sachs that I quote in the book who says, you know, President Xi, he just you know, he yes, just yes. gets things across the finish line. Yeah. <laughs> thinking, yeah, I mean, dictators have that yeah, ability yeah, no. to just throw people in jail that are in the way. But, but this is this is, I think, very revealing because if you look at the way the United States government has been run over in recent years, it does feel like we are acting more as though trying to find common ground, trying to work together, trying to cross party lines. And, and this is both sides. I think the left is far worse at this, but I do right. think both sides. It, it is becoming about, uh, it, it, that is not the recipe to get something done. The recipe right. to get something done is to ramrod it through. Correct. And this is what is fetishized on Wall Street and, and in the big tech world. Right. Because because if you think of like Wall Street, one of the reasons China is such a big growth area for them is one, it's, a, it's this large market, it's yeah. a developing economy. But also, if you're involved with an infrastructure project in China, you know, like we're going to build this highway, the government says you're building the highway. And the property rights of people who happen to live where, you know, who cares? I I mean, that, that'd be damned. So there's a lot of appeal to that, to people who are really interested in just making money by getting stuff done. Uh, and I also think in the tech world, you have this added phenomenon, Alex. I quote a, a MIT professor from the 1970s named Wiesenbaum, who talks about the fact that computer programmers, he identified this in the 70s, that computer programmers have this sort of godlike quality. Because unlike a business manager or a school teacher or uh, an artist, they create this entire universe themselves. Mark Zuckerberg, he designed completely what he wanted Facebook to look like. And he has been able to control and maneuver yeah. human relationships by doing so. That's real power and that is intoxicating. And so when these tech guys look at the fact that they've been able to do this in sort of this cyber area, they want to do the same thing in the real world. Um, and that's why I think they find this appeal to the autocratic rulers in, in Beijing. This is something that I know my radio audience will know that I've been kind of working through this concept ever since I started to really start thinking about TikTok in particular, because I do feel like this it makes it crystal clear that we are moving into this moment where we kind of are in a simulacrum. We're not really, because our reality for younger people, I'm 36, people younger than me, are spending more of their reality online right. in a universe that is curated by Mark Zuckerberg and by the Google guys and by whichever communists are running TikTok. They're kind of curating more of our lives than we're necessarily experiencing on our own, right. which is a pretty frightening concept because I've talked to some of them about it because I see them, uh, they're on their phone. They have what I uh, refer to as scrolliosis, <laughs> not stop scrolling. I like that. And I realize there's more of their life spent scrolling than, yes. than living, developing yes. relationships, even career. And yeah. you know, this isn't like a blame game thing. There's lots of reasons for this. Correct. Um, so I'm not trying to, you know, just just judge, even though, right. of course, it comes off as a little judgmental. I, I, I get that. Right. But we are moving into this time where people are spending so much time staring at their screens that who are the puppet masters controlling what's on your screen 
are godlike. Yeah. And this is the connection, I think, between the tech world yes. and the CCP. They're very similar in the way they operate their various universes. There's no question about it. So if they want you to do something, they want to encourage a certain behavior, they're going to manipulate the algorithm, they're going to manipulate the code to move you in that direction. Uh, I think that's absolutely right. And I think it's also startling that while we in the West, you know, because we believe in individual freedom, have sort of embraced the screens, you find that the tech titans, when it comes to their own children, don't want their children on screens yes. at a young age. And in China, I don't favor this, by the way, but China has strict restrictions put in by the Chinese government on how much time children can actually spend playing video games and being online. Right. So it's almost as if they get it, they, they understand this isn't healthy, but they they are pushing this stuff uh, and they're manipulating what we're seeing. enter the tech discussion, and we'll start with TikTok. I've come to the conclusion that TikTok is Chinese mind control. Yeah. It is here to distract us so that we don't write books, we don't read books, we don't develop our relationships, and we waste hours a day online staring at whatever the CCP allows us to stare at. Right. And best case scenario, we've wasted millions, hundreds of millions of hours, if not more. And worst case scenario, we start getting influenced. No, I, I think you're exactly right. And, and you can look at the statements that Xi has made in China uh, related to this. Um, first, he's putting these restrictions on how much time you can spend gaming, how much time y young people can spend on TikTok and other social media platforms. But the second thing is he said is we're in a tech race with, with the Americans. And whoever wins this tech race, which he likens to a war, will achieve the commanding heights yeah. and become the supreme superpower. So he sees very clearly, based on his actions and his words, uh, that these amusements, these distractions online, which so many people are absorbing and spending so much time doing, uh, is actually a net negative for the United States, and it's going to help China in its competition. So. I'm not suggesting, I know you're not suggesting this is some mass conspiracy. It's, it's, it's moving to the human condition, yeah. which is the interest for entertainment. And they're saying, we're going to open the floodgates and let you have access to it because it's going to build our companies. By the way, it's also going to affect your kids in a bad way, sure. but we're going to restrict it here. So they are very shrewdly, I think, playing a game that's going to benefit their nation at the expense of ours. And the amount of time is just so stunning right. that is that is wasted yeah. flipping through these apps yeah. and they've they've somehow created an app that was more addictive than Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, which is case in point, it's the number one domain in the world now. It's now surpassed Google. Right. And it's only going to go up because no one's talking the the language I'm, I'm using. I mean, there's no one using that type of language. Right. And, and even if I'm exaggerating, maybe 11% for, for, for emphasis, right. uh, it is by and large, that, that is what's happening, is that we are wasting hundreds of millions of hours at a time for a CCP app because they're exploiting our weaknesses and we're all cool with it. Like, in fact, we look mm -hmm. up to our TikTok influencers. They're, they're, they're the next cultural titans. It's not right. Hollywood stars, it's those right. people. 
Right, and it's bite-sized pieces of information that you know are very visual. It's very attractive, you know, way to sort of spend your time, just kind of mindlessly being stimulated. But you're right; it's not really leading to kind of any depth. It's not re leading to an accurate view of what's going on in the world, and it's not going to get you to think about serious, substantive things that need to be thought about. And I think the depth is crucial because. Uh, China is, is thinking very deeply about their place in world history yeah, right now. Yeah. And we're not. We're thinking very deeply about what's happening on our apps. And, yeah. and um, again, I'm exaggerating a little bit for emphasis. I'm not trying to be too negative, but they're in a process called the 100 Year Marathon. Uh, Michael Pillsbury wrote a very, terrific, very, book. very essential book yeah. about it. And uh, my, uh, my guess is we're 50 to 60 years into it. And it feels like there's been a little talk of it over the last few years, and that's really about it. And right. you know, the first you know 15 years of my adult life, this concept was never talked about. I think your book answers why this was never talked about. But it, it says where we are in this process, and um, what the risk is if we don't start thinking deeply and thinking genera generationally about issues like shared technology. Are we giving uh, China military uh, tech? Um, unknowingly? Are we giving them AI unknowingly? Are we too coupled with them in, uh, with trade? If we don't start thinking about that stuff now, it's the, how, how much longer do we have to go before they really start crushing us? Yeah, no, right. I mean, I, I would say, if I were to use a baseball analogy, I think we're in the bottom of the seventh inning. Um, and look, Xi has said by 2049, that will be the 100th anniversary of the uh, founding of the PRC. Uh, that they expect to be the supreme power. And you're right, they have this very deep sense of history. Um, you know, look at, for example, in the United States right now, we have all this fentanyl that, that uh, you know, is, more people are dying in some areas of, co of, of fentanyl than they are of COVID. I mean, it's, it's a massive wow. problem. If you look at some of the Chinese literature on this, um, because of course, most of the fentanyl comes from China. Um, Peter, you just gave all the tech titans reason to censor this interview. <laughs> It's factually true. Yeah, yeah. He said COVID. Let's censor it. Exactly, exactly. But you know, they talk about um, the opium wars. Sure. You know, of of uh, you know more than a hundred years ago, uh, where you know China, because of the opium trade, was split up and dissolved. They view the fentanyl crisis in the United States as a revenge, as it were, on the West for what happened during the opium wars. So that's the kind of perspective that they're coming from. And the problem is, we're in this competition with China. They they view it as a competition, but you've got so many elites in the West that are aiding and abetting them in their race against us. Uh, big tech is, is you know, pouring capital and intellectual capital into China, into military-related technologies. Wall Street is giving them access to capital, which is helping them compete more effectively against us. So we've got this bizarre situation where we're in a race. And the most successful and powerful people in our country, many of them, are actually helping our competitor in the race against us. Why? Because it's profitable and they can make a lot of money and, and doing it. And China's also set it up so they don't necessarily know. Um, and so let's kind of refocus on some of the tech stuff. Uh, that a lot of the time we don't know if we're working on anything technological with China. We don't know if we're actually aiding their military or their uh, abilities to advance in terms of AI technology. China's drawn it up this way and we've basically put our head, head in the sand, correct? Yeah, I mean, I would argue, uh, frankly, that, that a lot of the guys in the tech world um, know 
that there's military application to these technologies because they sign these agreements. For example, Microsoft has done this, Google has done this, where they are providing financial and technical support to artificial intelligence research labs in China. When you look at the institutions where that research is taking place, they all have military technology offices. In some cases, it's literally next door to where the research is being done. And you're required in China by the, this law, anything that has civilian application that can be applied to the military, you're required to share it with the military. So they have to know. They have to know that this is going on. The bottom line is either they're still buying into this idea that China will become more like us if we just keep doing this, Correct. or they don't care. Yeah. Um, and I honestly think that, that you know, these tech titans, they can be naive, they can probably be manipulated in some way, but they're not stupid. And I think they know exactly what's going on. They've just made the calculation that it doesn't matter because what they're doing is more important. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some names and I'm going to try to resist chiming in. And I kind of want you to free associate or give an anecdote. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, and let's start with Bill Gates. Yeah, I mean, Bill Gates, of course, the founder of Microsoft. If you look at the history of Microsoft, uh, they have always been very eager to be in China, and they've been willing to do a whole host of things to do so. Uh, they early on signed a lot of uh, contracts and joint agreements with military-backed companies to enter the market, to get into the Chinese market, to sell their software to the Chinese government. They agreed to actually uh, export engineering jobs to China um, by the thousands, uh, which I think is pretty remarkable for a company to do. Uh, but you also have this situation where Microsoft is sponsoring research on artificial intelligence in China. Uh, they know that this is a laboratory that works with the Chinese military. Uh, and they actually, Microsoft actually accepts interns from the People's Liberation Army. Uh, which is kind of bizarre. I've always wondered what that intern party must look like at Microsoft. Um, but beyond the Microsoft connection, uh, Bill Gates himself personally yeah. uh, has really cozied up to Beijing. He has invested in companies like BYD, which is a Chinese company that is developing guidance uh, systems for uh, missiles uh, that are going to be aimed in part at the United States. Uh, he's also been involved in trying to, uh, he's funding and providing tech support to build nuclear reactors in China that the US military says has military application. This can help China put these on submarines and on ships. Uh, again, Bill Gates is supporting this. And then you've got this bizarre situation where he becomes a member of uh, something called the Chinese Academy of Engineering. Wow. The problem is it's an organization run by the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah. Uh, its purpose, its explicit stated purpose is to expand the technological capabilities of the Chinese state. Uh, the guy that uh, founded it and ran it for a very long time, it was the father of China's uh, uh, nuclear weapons program. Um, and Bill Gates is an advisor uh, in a way that is an advisory capacity to the Chinese leadership. There's two anecdotes about Bill Gates, and there are many anecdotes about Bill Gates in the book, Red Handed. Uh, by Peter Schweitzer. And one of them is that Bill Gates said flat out, China cannot censor the internet. Then he provided China technology 
to help them censor the internet. Correct. But he literally went to students at Stanford University and said, censorship in China is impossible. And he even uses the analogy that to censor the internet in China, they would have to have a person looking over the shoulder of every computer user in China. And I'm thinking, this is the guy that you know founded Windows and yeah, this he, massive company? Within a year, literally, <laughs> they were censoring the internet. And they did so because Microsoft was providing software yeah. that allowed them to do it. And, and this is the problem you run across with Gates or with Zuckerberg or with others right. is you have to answer this fundamental question. Are they really stupid and naive to where they think you can't censor the internet or are they lying to people? Right. Neither one's a good choice. I frankly don't think they're that stupid and naive. I think they, they're just being fundamentally dishonest because they have such a desire to do, be doing business with China that they're lying to the American people. Uh, the other one is that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is essentially helping China colonize Africa. Uh, right. One of the sleeper issues, ironically, the other sleeper issue is the pandemic that somehow China has completely gotten away with. Right. 100%, they've completely gotten away with it. Right. But the other sleeper issue with regards to China on the world stage right now, they're colonizing Africa right now via yeah. something called Belt and Road, which we report on at, at Breitbart and almost nothing, no one else in the establishment press reports on it for whatever reason. Bill and Linda Gates have been instrumental to helping China do this. I think this is very, very scary. Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, he's got this massive foundation, you know, put, I think it's got, you know, 50 or $75 billion in it. They do a lot of work in the developing world, and they've struck up this partnership with the Chinese government uh, for some reason. Uh, and so they work with the Chinese government, not just in China, but actually in Africa, where you've got a lot of Chinese workers that are building infrastructure projects that are designed to help China project its power in the developing world. The Obama administration, the Trump administration, both said Belt and Road is bad news for the United States and it's bad news for these countries. But Gates is working with them, and uh, there are actually internal emails uh, that have been leaked that show uh, that they are working hand in glove with the Chinese government in a way that enhances Chinese governance in the developing world. Uh, so it's, it's a massive problem. And again, you have to ask yourself, is Bill Gates this naive, or does he not care because he so covets uh, a relationship with President Xi and the leadership. And I think that's probably it. I mean, at one point, he gave an interview on Chinese state television, I think it was, and he said, you know, President Xi is a great leader. He just works so hard for the Chinese people. Um, and at another point, he said, you know, China's uh, uh, response to COVID has been near perfect, was the description that he yeah. gave. Now, you know, they don't have, there's no accounting for how this virus evolved. We don't know. But let's at least have a conversation and let's not say the response is near perfect until we actually know. And the reason we don't know is because China doesn't want anybody to know, which ought to raise all kinds of questions. Yeah, yet it doesn't for so many reasons. Um, I, I, we could probably do another hour on Bill Gates, but let's, but, let's turn to Elon Musk. Yeah. Um, Musk has been a fascination for yeah. me. And, yeah. he, and personally, I am... I think it's lamentable that he suckered so many people in the conservative movement at this time. Maybe we'll touch on that. But he loves China, literally. Yes. Yeah, he says so. And, and it's weird because he used to be critical of China. Um, you know, he put out some tweets in 2016 and 2017, uh, really criticizing China for their tariffs on cars imported from the United States. Of course, he was trying to get, you know, Teslas sold in China at the time. Very critical of them. At another point, you know, he's got this program where he wants to put all these satellites uh, uh, around the planet. 
uh, to provide internet service, speedy internet service. And he joked that he's going to put them up everywhere except over China because China would probably shoot them down. Um, well, that's changed completely. Um, now he goes on podcasts and says that literally that the Chinese government is more responsive to the needs of its people than the representative government of the United States. He says, China rocks. I love China. He praises the Chinese Communist Party on their anniversary. And so the question is, why? How does this guy go from being critical? And the answer is basically that China built him a massive factory um, in their country. Um, and they are business partners. They bought the Chinese state-owned enterprises, bought a big chunk of Tesla. Uh, they are now producing these factories in mainland China. And, and, and not just uh, uh, factories, but also design centers. Correct. I mean, and, and this is another That's example. That's the glamour stuff. That's not the, the, the pick and shovel work. I mean, this is the glamorous job. Exactly. And this is what happens. And again, you have to ask yourself, do these, are these uh, American elites so arrogant to mm -hmm. think that they're going to outmaneuver the Chinese? Because they have to know the history. Sure. The initial deal was you're going to build a factory, you're going to produce the cars, uh, but the design studios were going to stay in California. Well, they built the factory and China's now got them. They've got them by the short hairs, you could say. Um, so now the design factory, uh, the design uh, uh, component of Tesla is going to be moving to China. Uh, and you've got a lot of the leadership in Tesla uh, has been um, in China, our, our former Chinese government officials that are actually running Tesla. You know, it's something that I think Musk, if I give him credit for anything, He's, he's an amazing media manipulator. He is. Also, uh, maybe maybe Trump's the only guy who can compete with them in that regard yep. in terms of being able to play a media cycle. I, I, I get that. But the other thing that he's figured out, that for whatever reason no one is talking about, that the key to being super wealthy is no longer being some sort of captain of industry where you have the best railroad or the best steel company. I, it is about cutting the best deals with the government. Absolutely. So that the government gives you the best bankrolls, what you're doing, and right. then that allows you to create insane levels of market share and to dominate and to get the monopoly status, et cetera. And Musk embodies this a lot. Google embodies it a lot. I think Eric Schmitz figured it out, figured that out at Google very quickly as right. well. Uh, can you speak to this concept and where China plays in? Because I think Musk is uniquely wealthy because he has uh, the, the the nature of his business, he has been able to play the U.S. and China in this way. Absolutely. I mean, you look at sort of the origins of Tesla, and you've got all the, the things related to tax credits for electric vehicles and whatnot. He's yeah. played that brilliantly. But in China, it goes up to even a greater degree. I mean, one of the things that is remarkable and that Elon Musk has praised China for is they built him this massive factory in China in, a, in about a year, which is you couldn't do that in the United States because, of course, we have things like, you know, zoning and labor laws that prevent. In China, a dictatorial regime, the government says, we're going to build this factory. They're going to build this factory. Elon Musk loves that. Yes. Um, so there's, again, that appeal to sort of just getting things done. If you look at the financial statements and the forward guidance for Tesla and Tesla stock that comes out from the company, the future is in China. That's that's what that is really the, the the major thrust of how that business is going to grow. The problem is, you know, Musk has other businesses. He has SpaceX, for example, SpaceX, yes. which launches satellites uh, for us in the United States, military and intelligence satellites. 
And part of the problem that's been identified, Alex, is Tesla and SpaceX share some common executives and they share common technology. Some of the software used in Tesla yeah. is also used in SpaceX. And what's happening in China? China is now saying, Tesla, we want you to hand over the software. Elon Musk's not going to be able to refuse that. He's in, he's, he's in way too deep. And this is the trick that I think some people could see coming, but there there isn't consequences for not seeing it coming right. or ignoring it until the situation presents itself. And this is the last kind of must question. Uh, how much of his technology that he's developing, a lot of it based off of, uh, you know, the American system that is going to be used for Chinese military and AI, et cetera? Oh, I think every single thing that, that, that you know, can't be nailed down in the sense it doesn't apply to the military, they will use in the military. Yeah. And that, that's precisely uh, what they want to do. And if you look at Tesla China, uh, they have explicitly stated as part of their corporate goal is to enhance the power of the Chinese state. I mean, that's Elon Musk's company, and they've said it explicitly. Uh, the man that, that uh, runs the factory has said that they are going to work in accordance with the national interests of China. Uh, the woman that handles PR for them uh, is a former, uh, basically, propagandist uh, for the Chinese state. Uh, and has bragged openly that she's only one phone call away of getting to President Xi. So look, Tesla is completely wedded to the Chinese state, and it's one of the reasons you're never going to see Elon Musk criticize China, and he's going to continue to make these sort of absurd statements that run interference. And the problem is, Alex, you and I know better. We know about China. There's a lot of 15-year-olds up there that look at, at, at Elon Musk. They admire him, and they're taking this crap that he's feeding them unquestioning. Oh yeah, China must be a great place because Elon Musk is tweeting about it and tells me so and I can believe Elon Musk. Right. And and hey, though he did fire off that one hilarious tweet about Elizabeth Warren. So we should forgive him for all this. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay, just a couple other quick ones in tech. Uh, let's talk about Tim Apple. Yeah. Tim Cook, uh, another example of a, of a tech guy who's built Apple. I mean, it's enormously successful under him. China is a central component of that. Uh, there's a meeting that took pay, place in 2015 when President Xi uh, came to the United States. This he is was, what I wanted. <laughs> go where I wanted to go. <laughs> he, he, he was you know, going to meet uh, Barack Obama, President yeah. of the United States, for a state dinner. But before, he stopped in Seattle, and, and, and there was a party at Bill Gates's house. So you've got the communist dictator of China and all all these tech titans. And, um, uh, you know, uh, Tim Apple is uh, sitting around with all the other tech titans and President Xi enters the room and Tim Cook turns to his uh, colleagues and says, did you just feel the earth shake? I mean, it's, this is like, you know, a, a teenager in the 60s going to a Beatles concert. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's remarkable to me the, 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 the sense that they have. There's another story where there's a, um, a, a commun the Communist Party's chief propagandist yeah. um, visits Silicon Valley. You can imagine what that's like. Uh, and he, you know, meets with Tim Cook and they're, they're, they're taking these funny, joking pictures together where, you know, the... Uh, propagandist is sort of wagging his finger at Tim Cook and Tim Cook is, you know, sort of like, you know, pleading with him. I mean, they're, they're sort of making light of the fact that Apple is completely dominated by the Chinese Communist Party. They don't want to criticize them. They don't want to say anything negative about them because they don't want to risk their relationships in Beijing. And you're thinking, how is this mighty, powerful executive of the biggest, most powerful company in the world, I would argue, kowtowing to these tin pot dictators, but that's exactly what they're doing.
key to understanding the most powerful people in terms of high finance in the United States right. is is the ability to cut deals with government. It is yes. socialism with Chinese characteristics. And I would submit that after reading your book, Peter, I realize that that's the model now in the United States is socialism with American characteristics. Increasingly so, and, absolutely. And um, that's a good segue to the Wall Street section that I want to talk about. And I guess we will start. Why don't we start with Stephen Schwartzman? Tell me about Stephen Schwartzman. So Stephen Schwartzman, very successful uh, investor, founded Blackstone Group. Uh, when Blackstone was launched, the, uh, a Chinese state-owned company took a 9.9% stake in it. The reason they didn't take a 10% ownership stake or more is that would have triggered a federal review, and it probably would have been rejected at the time. So he's been very closely aligned with, with Beijing for a long time. Uh, Blackstone does a lot of deals in China. They invest in Chinese companies. Some of those companies work in um, uh, technologies or businesses that supplement the Chinese military. Uh, but I think the thing about Schwarzman that's most stunning to me is um, he funded this thing called the Schwarzman Scholars. And the idea was he wanted kind of the Rhodes Scholarship uh, you know, that applies in the UK where people go and study sure. at Oxford University. Right. He wanted one for China, wow. you know. Like China universities so are noble. like, yeah, I mean, like, like, yeah, I mean, it's it's so totally absurd. I mean, that you're going to have freedom of inquiry at, at a Chinese university. But he pours $100 million into this. Yeah. And so, and, and basically what happens is, is that American students go and study in China as Schwarzman scholars. So we wanted to look and see, well, what is this? What do they study? What do they do? And what you find is that, as you can imagine, the entire program is run and managed by the Chinese Communist Party, by the Chinese Communist Party Youth League, uh, by uh, academics, I'll put that in quotation marks, in China that are, are bootlickers to the state. Uh, there's one Canadian professor there uh, who oversees Schwarzman's program who wrote a book about how the Chinese media is more free than the American media is. I mean, that literally, this is what this guy uh, believes. So American students go over there on, in a program funded by this Wall Street titan. They study Marxism-Leninism. Those classes are required as part of the curriculum. Uh, they get these, this apologia for what the Chinese state does. And then the commencement speakers are oftentimes people that run companies. They had uh, the guy that uh, created the software that allows them to facial recognition to identify ethnic Uyghurs in a crowd. Uh, he was actually one of the commencement speakers at the Schwarzman Scholars Program. So it's an example of a Wall Street titan who's literally sponsoring a propaganda program for the CCP. What do you think he gets out of it? He gets um, uh, inside deals uh, in China. You know, it's not a question of if you want to go in and buy a company in China or if you want to invest in some project or, you know, Blackstone does infrastructure projects. It's not as if you just go in and it's a free market and your Chinese counterpart just picks the business they think that best meets that project. It requires political approval. And part of the reason that Schwarzman has been able to do so many deals in China is because he always speaks favorably about them. You know, President Xi, he says, is a great friend of mine. Um, he makes excuses for, you know, they, they engage in all this, you know, intellectual theft. 
where yeah. they ignore patents. He describes it as, you know, a, a different cultural form of technology acquisition. What about his connections to Trump world? Because he's worked Trump world very hard as well. So this is Absolutely. one thing where, again, it's a nonpartisan book. And even though the Republican establishment much worse than the sort of Trump wing, though, yep. in the book, there's still this is one where you listed a number of people who are very high, intimate inner circle of Trump's administration connected this guy. Yeah, and I mean, Schwartzman um, considers him a, a friend of uh, Donald Trump as well, uh, and had a lot, I think, of influence or tried to have a lot of influence in the Trump administration when it came to China. He sure. was called the, the China whisperer uh, because he was the guy that could talk to Xi and that could talk to Trump. And his advice was always, always in the context of uh, keeping the access to technology and keeping access to capital markets wide open. And so when he threw a, a sort of China-themed birthday party for himself in 2017, uh, Jared Kushner was there, Ivanka Trump was there, uh, other senior officials from the Trump administration were there. So he's a guy that straddled political connections on both sides of the aisle and has worked very hard, I would argue, to lobby on behalf of the Chinese government in the corridors of power. And he does it as a, you know, disinterested financier, but he's not disinterested at all. He's doing it because it helps him get sweetheart deals in China. So a couple other Wall Street um, uh, companies or people to bring up. It, it, uh, another another company that comes off as not good, and unsurprisingly, is Goldman Sachs. Right. There's so much can be written um, about Goldman Sachs and their connection to China. But I think they've really been a catalyst for this normalizing of the socialism with, with Chinese characteristics as a legitimate uh, way of life. Uh, speak to this. Yeah, exactly. I mean, well, there's a guy named John Thornton who ran their Asia operations. Yeah. And um, he is the guy that came up with the idea in the 1990s of saying, hey, we've got this communist dictatorship that wants to maintain control. And we've got all these Western investors who want a free market system. He came up with a genius idea of, well, let's just write the corporate law in such a way that the CCP maintains control, but the investors get what they want. And, and it was really kind of a genius move. And that's what really opened up the floodgates, I would argue, to so much capital going into China. The CCP gets control and the investors get what they want, which are these massive returns turns on their investment, and they don't care if the CCP's in control because the money is so good. So when a guy like that goes over to Beijing and cuts a deal with the CCP, oh, what, what does it look like? Well, what do you think is going on in that room? It, it's a good question. I mean, I obviously was not in the room, but look, it's mutually beneficial. Yeah. Goldman and, and Chinese officials know this. Goldman wants to make money, and uh, the CCP wants to grow the economy but maintain control. And so I think they understood that there was this sort of mutual uh, uh, assurance uh, and that they had a common goal. And, and if you are prepared as a Western investor to say, we don't care if the CCP maintains control, the returns are so great, you're happy to do the deal. And what's interesting about Thornton is he worked at Goldman, then he left Goldman and became the first outside foreign professor. That's where I was going to go next. Yes. Exactly. So what is he? So he's at Xinhua University? Yes. Okay. Yes. So what is he teaching there? And what is the, 
I assume there's some prestige involved because he doesn't need the money, yes. obviously. There's prestige involved, but also uh, this is sort of the combination of MIT and Harvard in China. Yeah. This okay. is Xi's alma mater. Um, and he's in teaching the business school. And so the future leaders of China are generally going to come from this school. Wow. So this is a, a great culture, an incubator of cultivation because relationship is so important. And so he continues to teach there, but then he also lands this amazing investment gig uh, for something called the Silk Road Corporation. Sure. The Silk Road Corporation is literally the financial arm of One Belt, One Road. It's a government-backed investment firm, and they hired this guy from, you know, formerly from Goldman Sachs to head it up. So John Thornton is helping China finance the logistics for their expansion of Chinese influence into the developing world in a way that the Obama administration and Trump administration says is bad for America and is bad for the world. Looking at the way Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party, the Politburo there, they're 50, 60, 70 years ahead of us on this thinking. A guy like John Thornton at Goldman is 20 or 30 years ahead of us right. on this thinking. So it's the, how far behind are we? It seems like we're so far behind to unwind some of this. I, I think we are to some extent. I mean, we're not even quite at the reaction point. You know, they're, they're planning, they have a, a consistent plan uh, that's been thoroughly thought out. Uh, and we're even just trying to get our side, our team as it were, to react. Um, but look, I do, in a sense, want to be somewhat optimistic yeah. because there are very real powerful things that the United States has that's unmatched in the world that China does not have. China has vulnerabilities. The problem is if we continue to aid and abet Beijing, they will win. I'm confident that if we stop doing that, if this is a race where we're not helping the other side, we will win this race. And that's the key. We don't necessarily have to resemble them and yeah. what they're doing and how they're thinking, but we at least have to be alert to what their strategy is and respond accordingly. So, but where does the pushback come from? Is there anyone in Goldman who's reading your book and going, man, I can't believe we're a part of this? Or But no, I mean, and that's the problem. There's too much money. And what you're, what you're going to need is you're not going to get the big Wall Street firms to pull out of China. Sure. Unless they're number one, ashamed, which I think is part of what we're trying to do with this book. And number two, I think there's gotta be legislative action in Washington. And of course, you've got a lot of lobbyists and money floating around Washington, DC. But you know, to me, the notion that we allow these Wall Street firms to invest in businesses that are linked to their military is patently absurd and it ought to be outlawed. Uh, you, you end the book with an extremely frightening quote, and I, I, this is a spoiler, but people love reading it in context also, so I don't think I'm really spoiling it. As Muckraker, novelist Upton Sinclair reminds us, it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. <laughs> I mean, this is it. Yeah, this is what we're exactly, discussing. That's exactly This right. is why Wall Street has acted like this is all fine, because right. if they decide that it's not fine, right. then the billions go away. Yeah, and, and Larry Fink of, of BlackRock, you know, the biggest <coughs> the biggest financial firm in, in uh, uh, the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, they've got basically $10 trillion under management, which is almost half the size of the entire United States economy. This is a massive company, and Larry Fink is known for two things in my mind. Number one, uh, he's the one that is behind this woke capitalism. Sure. Uh, we've got to have investors that are not just shareholders, they're stakeholders. We have to worry about uh, the environment, uh, social issues, and governance. Right. And he's really taking the, the, 
stakeholder capitalism. Yeah, stakeholder capitalism. So he's got that on the one hand. On the other hand, he makes these absurd statements defending the conduct of the Beijing regime. I quote in one point in the book, an interview he gave in Australia, where he said, you know, he was asked about the massive human rights violations in China. And he said, yeah, you know, 10% of the people you know, are, are, you know, maybe being oppressed, but the other 80% are, are richer. Yes. Um, which, first of all, I don't think those percentages are right. Uh, but could you imagine making a statement like that in the United States? You know, 10% of the American population is, you know, brutally oppressed, but hey, the other percent's richer, so, you know, we're all good. Uh, you know, to me, that's where Larry Fink is, and BlackRock has so much to gain from right. being in China financially. So this moral crusader who lectures us about, uh, you know, racial discrimination and inequities in the United States uh, has absolutely zero to say when it comes to, you know, problems that are 100 times worse in China. Uh, even for someone who I is somewhat informed, like I am, I was stunned at just how powerful BlackRock is, the way you set up in your book. Uh, they actually called the fourth branch of government yeah. in some cases. Yeah. I, I mean, that is a very scary thing when you've got a guy like this in charge. Yeah. Uh, how powerful are they and how much of what they're doing is influenced by the sort of pro-China politic? Oh, I, I think they're, they're, they're hugely influential. And I think like all the other Wall Street firms, they see, and Larry Fink said this, the future growth is in China. Um, and they increasingly see themselves as, as a Chinese company. But then you look at the- but, but why is there no reporting on this? Why is there, there there's some, a, li a little bit. It comes up, some of the China Hawks on our radio show uh, bring up Larry right. Fink consistently, but, but th that's about it. I mean, it's really a hawkish sect of a small portion of the right. And uh, no one else is talking about this kind No, they're, they're right. And I mean, part of that you covered in your book. I mean, I'm not sure Bloomberg's yeah. gonna tout this because yeah. you know, Bloomberg's got their China ties. Uh, but the other thing to be said about BlackRock, the reason they have so much power is not just that there's a big Wall Street firm and they give a lot of donations to yeah. candidates. Uh, you look in the Biden administration, there are senior people in the White House. The head of the Domestic Policy Council uh, is, a, is a, a BlackRock executive. Uh, one of the senior uh, people in the State Department is a BlackRock executive. So these are people that are part of the revolving door in Washington, D.C. So they are shaping policy and shaping China policy. Um, and in fact, when uh, Brian Deese from BlackRock was appointed the uh, White House Domestic Policy Council, there was actually a quote from a Chinese executive saying, this is a good sign because here's somebody who has experienced the good sauce from China. Um, wow. And that, that I think, sort of reflects the, uh, the attitude. You know, one thing that's also interesting with, with Fink is that the BlackRock, um, a BlackRock, I guess, or at least, I don't know how, to the extent to which they do this, but they boycott Saudi Arabia, right. but not China. This is a phenomenon I've noticed culturally. Again, we're talking about Khashoggi like three years later. Correct. And, but we don't talk about what's going on in Correct. China right now. Yeah, I mean, look. What's up, Peter? Let, yeah, let's just, let's just put this in, in brutal terms. Uh, the, the, the murder of Khashoggi was yeah. horrible and terrible. It's one journalist. I mean, there are dozens of Chinese journalists that disappear yeah. every year. Exactly. Every year. So why do we, why do we single out Saudi Arabia, not to say I have anything nice to say about Saudi Arabia. Right. The, the it's a small market. That's why. I mean, Saudi Arabia, relatively speaking, for somebody like BlackRock, yeah. um, it is just not a big market. So it's a perfect opportunity. It's this sort of selective outrage and co largely cost-free outrage, yeah. right? And I point out in the book, Larry Fink, after Khashoggi is murdered and it comes out that, that the government appears to be behind it, 
Um, Larry Fink says, well, we're going to boycott this investment conference in Saudi Arabia. And he goes on CNBC and sure. talks about it. Why does he do that? You know, they boycott them for a year. Uh, they can go back. Saudi Arabia is a blip on the screen as far as BlackRock is concerned. China is not. So it's this selective moralizing, which to me is the worst kind of moralizing. You know, you can be a, a sort of Henry Kissinger realist where I'm not concerned about really human rights anywhere, or I think you can be a very consistent person who's upset about human rights abuses everywhere. But this, I'm going to pick and choose yes. based on whether it costs me anything, whether I do it, yes. is, is, is I think the most revolting kind of sermonizing that there is. You're exactly right. And this is the pattern throughout Wall Street. Yeah, and, and, there we are. I mean, one of the favorite stories I have in the book involves Ray Dalio. Uh, you know, he runs Bridgewater Associates, the big hedge, biggest hedge fund in yeah. the world. Uh, you know, talks about all these kinds of woke issues about again racial inequities in the United States. Uh, and of course, has been eager to get into China for a long time. Yes. So he wrote this book in 2017, ironically called Principles. Uh, and in that book, um, he talks about this sort of mystical figure in China, yeah. uh, a guy named Wang Qishan. He's the second most powerful man in the country. And he describes him as sort of this quasi-religious figure that uh, helped Ray Dalio almost find the hidden secrets of the universe. Mm. Yeah, I mean, amazing. Must be an amazing guy. Yeah. And says he's been this remarkable force for good for decades. Right. And I thought, this guy's a high-level politics, remarkable force for good. He untapped the secrecy. Must be an incredible guy. So I, I'm going to try to figure out who Wang Kishan is. Spent like 30 minutes online going to you know, human rights reports, looking at mainstream publications. Find out Wang Kishan is Xi's enforcer. What? He's 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 responsible for party wow. discipline. This is like a Shea, this is like a Che Guevara type deal where yes. he's actually was Castro's executioner yes. Yes. And, and somehow became, you know, the symbolism of freedom and, and exactly. the man. Exactly. And yeah. and the Economist magazine says this guy's the most feared man in China. Yeah, right. People that get disappeared, uh people that get tortured, Wang Kishan's the guy that arranges it. This is a guy that Ray Dalio says is such a remarkable figure. About a year after he wrote that book, Ray Dalio's Bridgewater became the first hedge fund in the world allowed to sell its products to the average person in China. One thing that really scares me about Dalio is he is behind the social credit score. He's really into it. And this is, yes. I think, the biggest fear, especially in a sort of mid to post coronavirus, right. COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, yeah. Wuhan flu world. The thought of a social credit score, I think, is becoming very real to people. That right. We could start losing privileges because we are not seen uh, as being a good member of the of whatever it, 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 of the state, basically. Right. Oh, absolutely. And there there are people advocating and, and pushing for it. Uh, one of the people I profile in the book, um, Joe Sai, who's a co-founder of Alibaba, sure. um, you know, very pro-CCP, goes on college campuses, says, you know, China's great, you don't understand the human rights situation and all these sorts of things. Um, he actually told the Wall Street Journal that a social credit score system is, is a really great thing because yeah. it teaches, especially younger people, how to behave. Yeah. Meaning the state, of course, it teaches them how to behave. But I note in the book that... Um, uh, of course, Joe Tsai is very successful, co-founder of Alibaba. He doesn't raise his kids in China. 
where there's a social credit score. His kids are raised in California. What? And that's the, really the question, you know, when you look at people like Ray Dalio and others, sure. I know he's older, but you wonder, do they really want these rules to apply to themselves and their children? Uh, and I don't think they do. There's a reason Joe Tsai's family lives in California and not China. And I think we know that, and he knows deep down, that it's an oppressive state uh, that could take away his civil rights immediately with no questions asked. NBA owner. Yes, Brooklyn right, Nets. Right, the Brooklyn Nets. Yeah. And he actually comes off in the book somehow even worse than LeBron James, which is amazing. <laughs> uh, but talk to me a little bit about the the sports world. Yeah. Uh, let me talk about LeBron in particular because he's the biggest sellout of the group. Right. Um, but it is a culturally a phenomenon to sell out to China. Uh, and Joe Tsai and LeBron are, are the leaders in this. But anywhere you want to take it. Yeah, I mean, the NBA uh, is hugely pro popular professional basketball in China. Right. Uh, it's a bigger market than the United States. So that's, I think, what the motivation is. And you can look at uh, somebody like LeBron James. He saw this early on when he was you know, coming into the NBA in the early 2000s. Uh, he actually explained to people that he wanted to try to learn Mandarin because right. he said that's where the future was. Uh, and he's been an apologist all along uh, for Beijing. People are familiar with the you know, more recent incident where the Houston Rockets general manager tweeted you know, favorably about Hong Kong sure. and lost his job and LeBron James called him ignorant. Um, well, that's sort of just the latest. If you go back uh, to the late 2000s, you had this terrible crisis in Darfur in Sudan where hundreds of thousands of black Christians were being slaughtered by their government. The government was backed by China. China was their big trading partner. They were providing them you know, equipment that was allowing them to kill these people. And so there was a petition drive launched in the NBA to condemn the Chinese government for their complicity in the slaughter of 200,000 uh, Christians in Sudan. Uh, LeBron James refused to sign the petition. Um, the only other player on the Cle Cleveland Cavaliers who didn't was sort of a backbench player who had a shoe contract with a Chinese shoe company. Um, so, you know, LeBron James has been covering for China for a long time. Uh, in addition to his big deal with Nike that a lot of people know about, he has deals with Chinese state media. Uh, mm. He has his own really? shoe line. Yes, he has his, his, shoe, his own shoe line uh, that is sold exclusively to the elite in China. I mean, he is wedded to them in ways that a lot of people don't realize. And Joe Tsai, who owns the Brooklyn Nets, again, made all of his money from Alibaba, um, is seen as the bridge between the NBA and China. Uh, he's politically connected. Uh, Alibaba is a company that has deep ties to the Chinese state and the Chinese military. Um, and Joe Tsai has really done a couple of things as a Brooklyn Nets owner. Number one, he's been totally focused on what he calls the grave social injustices in the United States. Yeah, didn't he have like a Black Lives Matter community meeting at the stadium? Absolutely. He, he, let, he let the protesters come to the Barclays Center where the, where the Brooklyn Nets pay. He's also put $100 million into right. Black Lives Matter causes. Uh, and he and his wife talk all the time about how racism is rampant in the United States and justice is here. 
When the subject turns to China, it's completely different. No, no, no. Things are great in China. Yeah. The human rights abuses you don't understand. Uh, you're not fully cognizant of it. Um, and to me, this is an enormous problem because I think you have these CCP-linked uh, oligarchs and businessmen uh, who are supporting what I would argue are very divisive uh, messages in the United States about how terrible our country is. Not to say we don't have some problems, but we're this terrible country, while at the same time talking about how great China is, a country that has a human rights situation that is a thousand times, 10,000 times worse than it is in the United States. Among the horrifying trends, this is very high up there, that you've identified a pattern of the same people who are China apologists are the ones who are the most critical of the American system. And I don't think this is a joke. I think this is very, very scary yeah. because if they start actually treating the Chinese system as superior to the American system, I believe them. I don't think they're just faking it. Even if they're convincing themselves of that just so they can make money, I I'm very concerned that if you raise a generation, if that's your professor class, you know, if that's the class of people who are on TV and who are the TikTok influencers, right. uh, then I'm very concerned long term uh, about this. And I think that this issue of the uh, genocide in, in Darfur was it was a total smoking gun. Because I remember when I was, I guess, 15 years or so ago, I remember mm -hmm. I was a student at Berkeley, and I remember um, kind of looking into it and seeing like, wow, I think George Clooney is actually right on this one. Yeah. I think this is really bad and yeah. good for him. I think for once the celebrity activist class that's so cringy was actually right. Whatever happened, Peter? How come we don't talk about it anymore? Exactly. How come it went away? We, I have, this is the first time I thought of the genocide in Darfur in 10 years. Yeah. Why? Because it doesn't matter and yeah. we don't care about it? Or is it because we figured out why it was happening and that hurts the business model of LeBron James? Yeah, well, and, and think about it this way, Alex. That was 2007, 2008. Yeah. Imagine if the Darfur crisis were unfolding right now. Would George Clooney, would these stars that embraced it back then do so now? Yeah. Maybe. I think it's rather doubtful. I think a lot of them would find themselves in, wow. in, in John Cena's position. Uh, so that's, I think, part of the problem uh, that we have, that there, there are very few people that have the moral courage to stand up and support activism when it may actually cost them something. Uh, the activism that LeBron James engage, engages in or, or Joe Tsai engages in, it's cost-free. I mean, if anything, it gets them good press. The real test, I think, to anybody's commitment to a cause and activism is, are they prepared to actually pay a real price for it? Uh, and I don't see any evidence that, that pretty much anybody in Hollywood is prepared to do so. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the education system. And it, you kind of use Yale as the, the best example maybe of this, but China's infiltrating our education system in a major way. Yeah. And can you share some of the details that the audience might not be familiar with? Absolutely. I mean, people might be familiar with the Confucius Institutes, which yes. are kind of these to study, you know, the Chinese language that are really sort of, I would argue, propaganda mills uh, for Beijing. But it goes even deeper than that, what, what's happened is with this huge wealth in mainland China, uh, you have uh, dozens, if not hundreds, of very super wealthy uh, oligarchs in China who are linked to the CCP, who are now making donations 
to their alma maters. Many of them came to school in the United States for grad school or undergraduate, um, or they didn't even necessarily go there, but they're making large donations to American universities. And yeah. so Joe Tsai, who we talked about earlier, the Brooklyn Nets owner, the Alibaba co-founder, uh, has given hundreds of millions of dollars to Stanford, to Yale, uh, to other universities. And the problem is oftentimes there are strings attached. Now, these strings may be like fishing wire. You can't really see them. Uh, but it goes without saying, uh, because I quote, you know, students and faculty members, that it changed the atmosphere at Yale in a major way. Joe Tsai's uh, money going to that university. But the problem is compounded by the fact that these universities are also trying to obscure the fact that all this money is coming in from China. So. In the case of Joe Tsai, he's from Taiwan. He founded this co-founded this Chinese company. He's made billions of dollars in mainland China. Uh, he lives in California. When he donates to Yale, it is technically listed as a U.S. donation coming from his foundation in California. Well, we looked at the tax records. He made no donations from the, the foundation has basically no assets. It's one of his foreign accounts. And so why do they do this? Because universities like Yale are required by federal law to disclose foreign donations to the Department of Education. Uh, and Yale has been avoided in doing this. A lot of other universities have. So we don't even know the full extent to which my, mainland Chinese money from oligarchs linked to the CCP is actually flowing to our colleges and universities. And the universities are actively trying to obscure it. It's a huge problem and it is shifting the debate in our country uh, because that money comes with strings attached or it's going to fund Chinese studies. And we all know that nobody wants to upset, you know, somebody who's cutting a $30 million check to Yale uh, and they end up and I demonstrate this in the book, being very soft in what they have to say about China. Uh, Peter, we're getting close to sort of the solutions portion where I want to hear some of your ideas. So put a pin in that because I, I, I'm stunned that that's legal. And it is just like so much of the book, so much of this is all legal, which is so disturbing. So I do want to return to that. Um, but I do want to touch on just a little bit uh, politically, but I want to talk a little bit about Henry Kissinger. Uh, he's another guy who seems to be a real catalyst right. for America losing our way on this topic. And yeah. again, I, generally, I think if you ask people, what do you think of Henry Kissinger, they'll say, well, I don't like him, but they don't really know why or right. who he is even necessarily. Right. I, I, can we talk about him for a minute? Yeah. I mean, you know, Kissinger, of course, was Secretary of State in the 1970s. He was responsible for sort of the opening of China, diplomatic relations with China. And you could argue in the Cold War, it kind of made sense, right? The Soviet Union was our main competitor. So... We'll kind of hook yeah. up with the Chinese. Uh, the problem is, is that once he left government service, uh, he was very motivated to make a lot of money, and that's fine. Uh, the easiest way for him to do that was to become a gateway for people who wanted to do business in China. So he became kind of the go-to guy uh, and made a lot of money doing so. He set up business ventures in China. And the important thing to understand, Alex, is, is he will say that, well, no, I don't work for China, I work for U.S. corporations. Yeah. But his entire consultancy and business model was predicated on the fact that he had very good relationship with the Chinese Communist Party leaders in China. So if Exxon wanted to do a deal in Beijing, Exxon might be paying him, but the only reason that Exxon is paying him large fees is because they know that he can get them a meeting, and a friendly meeting, with the top people in Beijing. 
So he's made a fortune doing this, and along the way, he has made all kinds of excuses uh, for China. He has actively tried to undermine uh, uh, people within the Republican Party who have taken a stronger position uh, towards China. I, I recount in the, uh, the book when uh, Newt Gingrich said favorable things about Taiwan in the 1990s, Kissinger actually called him up and said, no, 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 you shouldn't do this. This sure. isn't a good idea. So Henry Kissinger is, is lauded in China as one of the great towering figures. Uh, in fact, it, he's reportedly one of the few foreigners whose photograph is hanging in Chinese Communist Party headquarters in Beijing. I'm not saying that to suggest he's an agent or, or a communist, but he is he no, is seen. It's easier than that, and it's more disturbing. Exactly. Because there's so much money there. Yes. That, and apparently you don't have to be all that clever to get a bunch of it. That's right. And this is the trick. This is where they've got us suckers. They've got yes. us suckered. Peter. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and, and no one can resist, even people who are... Um, you know, morally seen in high regard, like Condoleezza Rice, for example, which is, I've got a lot of issues with some of her, her politics, but I've never talked to anyone who knows Condoleezza Rice who doesn't say something nice about her. Yeah. But she cashes in on yeah. China. She yeah. even talks a big game on China and then cashes in on China. This pattern to me is, is equally as disturbing as crackhead Hunter Biden cashing in. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is. And I mean, the, the, the problem is a guy like Kissinger, who's been at the game since the 70s yeah. to the present, he knows, he knows that engagement has failed, yeah. that China's not where he has said for decades it would be if we just did the things that he said. Yeah. Uh, Connell Reza Rice has been on the scene a little bit shorter period of time, you know, the, the Bush uh, administration, Secretary of State, but the same thing. Um, and she's been a little more hawkish on it than, than uh, uh, Henry Kissinger has. But yes, the bottom line is her consultancy firm, uh, part of the services they offer are technology transfer services to China. Uh, she's got some partners in her business that, that you know, really poo-poo the fact that China, China represents some kind of technological challenge. It's an enormous problem. And these are uh, individuals, Madeleine Albright, Bill Clinton, yes. Secretary of State, you could add her name to the list. They go on television and they talk about U.S.-China relationships, and it's never mentioned, it's never disclosed that part of their consultancy business model is they have to maintain good relationships with Beijing because if they don't, they can't charge Western firms for access or problem solving uh, for their activities in China. And, and it's so ironic because then they say that, you know, America has turned into a fascist place where we just are constantly <laughs> criticizing right. our own government 24-7. Uh, right. But hey, right. but you got to kiss Beijing's butt if you want to make this sweet, sweet commie cash. Right. And we all go along with it. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the Bush family is incredibly offensive in the book. Uh, talk yeah. to me about some of the, the, the lowlights for you. Yeah. I mean, you know, you've had, of course, uh, the Bush family has been at the center of politics. George H.W. Bush, president of the United States. George W. Bush, of course, president as well. Uh, and the family members sort of around the periphery uh, have cashed in along the way. And it's absolutely because of the political power that the families had. So uh, George H.W. Bush, his brother Prescott Bush, uh, got a lot of deals from the Chinese government um, when H.W. Uh, Bush was president of the United States. When George W. became president of the United States, his now uncle Prescott Bush uh, again got more deals. Neil Bush got in on the yes, game. Yes, yes. Nail Bush got a, a deal from a Chinese computer company. They paid him a million dollars a year as a consultant. 
Neil Bush comes off as someone who genuinely loves China. Yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, no, he absolutely does. And I don't know that he had background in coding when he signed up with this computer company. The computer company, by the way, was right. run by the son of the Chinese premier. Yeah. So you had this kind of interesting duality. But now, if you look at Neil Bush today, what's he doing? He's got this Bush Institute for U.S.-China Relations, which is funded in part by Chinese United Front groups linked to the government. And he goes on China state television making excuses for the crackdown in Hong Kong. I mean, it's, it's, it's sad and pathetic at the same time. Uh, but the, the, they really use George W. Bush also to promote the genocide games. Yes. They used Bush to do that. And Bush, again, he bought into this notion that if we would just engage with China, they will become more like us. Uh, and of course, the opposite has changed. And none of the leaders, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, their advisors who pushed this theme, they were so monumentally wrong. And of course, a lot of them cashed in, even yeah. though they were wrong. No one's been challenged on this. No right. one's been held in account on this. They are, they are all viewed as sort of these uh, powerful, gray-haired intellectuals that are so smart and, and sheer the, steer the ship of state in such wonderful directions. We're going to go there next, but before we do, Heb Bush. We, we call him Heb, Soft J. Uh, he's going to China and cutting deals. I mean, he's supposed to be the good guy. Um, yeah, no, I mean, Jeb Leaves is, uh, you know, very successful governor of the state yeah. of Florida, uh, sets up a private investment fund. And where does he go for funding? He goes to China and he hooks up with a investment firm in China that is part of the red aristocracy, as it's called. It's, it's very politically juiced in. Uh, so he makes good money doing that. And then you have this bizarre situation where when he has his sort of short uh, run uh, for president in 2016, there's this concerted effort by people linked to uh, pro-Chinese government groups uh, to donate millions of dollars to his presidential campaign. Yeah. It's truly remarkable, and he has also been very consistent. We need to engage with China. Yeah, they're gonna cheat. He says at one point, yeah, they're gonna cheat, but we need to engage with China, uh, which China's very happy with that kind of message. Uh, the book is red-handed. Peter Schweitzer, Government Accountability Institute. He's a senior contributor for us at Breitbart News. Kind enough to invite me to his uh, semi-top secret. So is, 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 is there like a lower than top secret uh, location here uh, to at the Government Accountability Institute to have this long conversation? Uh, Peter, this is the part where this will either be the most fun or the most troubling. I want to talk about where we go from here. Uh, yeah. There's some positive chatter. Um, but I want to see what you're looking for. There's been some discussion of perhaps special counsels and Hunter Biden, um, still very alarming, more alarming than yeah. I, I would have anticipated, making more money, so clearly tied to Joe Biden. The whole Biden family uh, is dependent on Hunter, who is dependent on Joe, and they're all dependent on China. That is the sort of web that you make very clear. Uh, so there's discussion of a special counsel. Wh what are you looking for, especially heading into 2023, where you believe Republicans will probably have power? Uh, what do you want to see? Yeah, I mean, what I'd like to see is in both the House and the Senate, although the Senate, I think we're going to have problems because Mitch McConnell uh, has his own Chinese ties, but at least in the House. Very would, deep. Yeah, very deep. I'd like to see in both bodies uh, very serious, clear investigations and moving forward with solutions. So, you know, absolutely. Absolutely. There needs to be an independent counsel. There needs to be congressional investigations with subpoena power, 
of Hunter Biden, but Hunter Biden is emblematic of the larger problem yeah. of this Chinese strategy. That, you know, dealing with the Hunter Biden and the Biden situation does not solve the overall problem. Right. We need to have very serious uh, reforms. We need to make it clear that, you know, we cannot allow our politicians in Congress to be doing yeah. private deals with China. Um, but, it, but this is where I don't want, for people in the audience who are right of center, who have some power, I don't want us to be lazy here and just to think we're going to go after Hunter because he's right. a cartoon character. Right. That's not the right approach. Correct. The right approach is to think about systemically what are the problems and are there legal steps we can make to correct some of them or to begin yeah. to correct them. Because here's the thing. Let, let's assume that the information comes out. Uh, Hunter Biden is found guilty. Uh, you know, Joe Biden is impeached. The problem is from Beijing's perspective they'll find somebody else. Yes. They will find other, uh, their Washington's By all means, go down that road. Absolutely. But, but not just that road. Absolutely, not just that road. I mean, you, you need to, I think, first of all, you know, sort of cut off the head of the snake. I mean, Joe Biden is the president of the United States. He's the commander in chief. He has this massive problem with China. I believe he's compromised. The deals that they got in China are all linked in some way to Chinese intelligence. There's no question in my mind it's a problem. But you have to deal with the fact that you've got senior members of Congress, Nancy Pelosi, for example, Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate, have their I, I would argue, very, very troubling ties with China that are clouding their judgments. And you have the problem in Silicon Valley and Wall Street. So what we need to do is start building a consensus together. One of the things I do in the uh, last chapter of the book, I never thought I would do this because there's so many things I disagree with Chuck Schumer on. Yeah. I actually praise Chuck Schumer because on China, he's actually been pretty good. Yeah. And for us to really have concerted action in Washington, we've got to have a bipartisan effort. Joe Man has been good on China. Senator, how, how about George Soros? Uh, George Soros has been good on China. Uh, Peter Thiel. Well, what is that has about, been, by the way? I, I, I think it. I think it is a, a genuine hostility uh, to the Chinese regime. Yeah. There's, I think, a historical component to it. And my point is, is if you look at uh, you know the Second World War, when you're fighting a, a battle for your life, which I believe we are with China, yeah. you have to find allies wherever you can get them. And we don't have to agree on other issues. I'm not no. going to agree with George Soros on any issue on you much. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But on this, we can. So let's form a consensus together um, and do that. I, I, it wouldn't be a Breitbart interview if I didn't bring up Mitch McConnell. Um, it's the, the again, you profiled him in the past in Elaine Chow. Um, I, I have to say that I, I am uh, disappointed in retrospect that she became the transportation secretary under President Trump, a president right. who I was very excited about. I think that was a, 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 a in, in retrospect, not a good move because their wealth is tied to specifically Chinese shipping. Absolutely. It's, it's not just China, the broader China. It's Correct. Chinese shipping. Um, do you believe it's appropriate for Mitch McConnell to remain the leader of the, the, the Republican Party in the Senate? No, I don't, I don't think you can expect him to uh, honestly and forthrightly deal with China, given the fact that the Chinese government could destroy the family business overnight. Yeah. I mean, you know, let, let's be clear. You know, this is the Chow family business. Mitch McConnell himself has received a gift from his father-in-law of between five to twenty-five million dollars. Um, Elaine Chow, of course, certainly stands to benefit from the company. Uh, uh, you know, when her father passes away with ownership, Formo Shipping Group 
was a relatively small company in the 1990s. Mitch McConnell had married Elaine Chow. Mitch McConnell in 1993 travels to Beijing with his father-in-law to meet with Chinese officials. Nobody's going there because of Tiananmen Square. So the fact that a United States senator is visiting China is a big deal. And they basically strike a bargain. And the bargain is the Chinese government is in the business of helping the family shipping business grow. So you have a situation today where Foremost is now this large company. All their big massive ships, those massive cargo ships that you see that are sitting off the port of Los Angeles and elsewhere, all those ships are being built by the Chinese State Shipbuilding Corporation. Wow. All the financing for the construction of those ships is being provided by Chinese state banks. The crews of those ships are, are basically provided by the Chinese government. And a lot of the contracts that they have for shipping goods around the Asia Pacific region come from Chinese state-owned enterprises. So the bottom line is, were Mitch McConnell to really take a hard line on Beijing? Let's say we, we, we find out that this is a lab leak, that COVID was a lab leak. You know, we don't know yet, but let's yeah. assume we find that out. Uh, and there is legislation just saying we are going to take serious, aggressive action against Beijing. What's Mitch McConnell going to do? Yeah. Um, you know, the Chinese government could destroy the family business overnight. Uh, and that has to be a calculation. Um, and so I think it's not appropriate for him to be in leadership uh, because as leader, he has uh, enormous influence on what happens on the Senate floor. Yeah, and I do think that this is going to put a lot of pretty good Republican senators uh, in, in a tough spot because uh, I'll tell you that I, I flat out agree with you. And I think there'll be a lot of pressure partially because of this book and partially because of the long history with with uh, with with Mitch McConnell and Elaine Chow. I think a lot of people are not going to be accepting of that uh, if the Republicans take the Senate back. And it's important to remember this because this is going to come up in a year, Peter, yeah. the, this particular issue. Um, China is basically allowed to lobby the United States. It, it, it is There are legal ways to do it. Um, why is that? How do we stop it? <laughs> Good question. I don't think they should be legally allowed to do it. Um, you know, the Constitution grants the right to petition the government, and that effectively today means lobbying. So, you know, if, if, if a group of us are mad about something going on in Washington, we can go and lobby members of Congress, or we can hire somebody to do it. I think that extends to uh, Americans. It's a right of citizenship. I don't think the right to petition the government extends to Chinese companies, especially Chinese military and intelligence-linked companies. And as we've profiled on Breitbart, as I point out in the book, you've got 23 former U.S. senators and congressmen who are getting rich lobbying for Chinese intel or military-linked companies. I mean, it's patently absurd. Some of them are pulling down a million dollars a year just, just for lobbying for, for these, this one company that they're lobbying for. Uh, I think that needs to be banned outright. Um, I don't see any constitutional right extending to foreign corporations, foreign military-linked corporations uh, to be able to do that. We should ban that. Um, that's going to be a fight as well, because let's face it, a lot of these congressmen, when they leave office, they're looking and seeing what their former colleagues are doing now, and they're seeing that they're making a lot of money. But to me, this is one of those issues that is a 95 to 5 issue. It's a 99 to 1 issue. I think very few people would defend the rights 
of these companies to do that. Of the public, though. Uh, they, in, in Washington, it's the other, it's the opposite. Correct. It's the flip. And we need to get them to pay a price for it. Right. You know, I'm kind of optimistic about this because of the experience we had on the insider trading bill sure. with the Stock the Act. Stock Act yeah. And it, we ended up getting it passed. Because, and Andrew was, which, was which, a, which is due to Peter's, Peter's research. Well, we did the research in the book, and then Andrew uh, yes. uh, was, was running Breitbart at the time. He made this a cause celeb. Um, and pushed it hard, and it forced a lot of members of Congress who did not want this Amen. bill to pass to pass the bill. Of course, they went later and kind of gutted it. But my point is, yeah. But 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 Peter, let me emphasize that really a terrific legacy of Enders, and I'm glad it, it absolutely is pointing out. Yeah, he, he, he actually mentioned to me, I remember, he had never asked for a congressman to resign. Yes. And there was, a, I'm trying to remember his name. Bacchus. Right? Yeah, yeah. A, a congressman Bacchus, Republican from Alabama, yeah. had gone to a briefing during the 2008 financial crisis that was apocalyptic. Yeah. And the next day he had shorted the market and made a bunch of money. And that, Andrew had never called for resignation before. Yep. He insisted on it there. And I think that, that was enormously helpful. But... To the current context, sure. it makes me somewhat optimistic still that if there is such an outcry, such a swell for support for legislation, these politicians want to keep their jobs. They will support this kind of legislation if they have to. Yeah. Um, and we have to make them feel that they have to. But Peter, a lot of people look up to you because of what you're doing. You're standing up to the bad guys and you're doing it not with hysteria, but with a very calm, researched approach to it, which, of course, resonates with me. People who are familiar with, with me and my thinking. Yeah. I, I'm very struck reading this book about how we are cursed with a mediocre leadership class, uh, both morally, uh, but also just in terms of where the priorities are. I, I think this is a major problem, and I don't know if that's the case around the world, uh, particularly in China. It might be the case in Europe, to be honest with you. Uh, but I think this is an issue, that we have a lot of mediocre people who are elevating to untold amounts of power. Uh, how do we come back from this, assuming you agree to some degree, that there is a how do we try to get to raise people, to try to create a country where uh, we are trying to create great men and women to, to lead us, uh, to people who have a moral backbone, who are courageous, who are not afraid of, uh, you know, a bunch of mean tweets and are not going to sell out for that sweet, sweet commie cash. How do we do that? Because that, to me, is the elephant in the room. Well, I think if you look at our culture today, you know, cancel culture, and uh, we need to reward courage. I'm not saying being courageous about stupid things, sure. but being courageous about real things. We need to reward that. Uh, I think we also need to recognize that it, it's not always a question of getting a leader who is going to lead effectively from the front. Sometimes you just need to have people that, that are prepared enough to see where the winds are going. Yeah. And I feel like the wind is starting to shift on China. I really do think we're starting to wake up to the fact there are several other books that are coming out. You see in some of the news coverage, of course, not the big corporate media, you see more awareness of issues related to China. Um, so I think you have to at least make leaders aware of it. And I think you have to reward political figures who are going to be imperfect, who are going to say the wrong thing sometimes, but who are prepared to stand up to the mob. That's the beginning of the character quality that we need from leadership. Um, and I think, unfortunately, too many of our leaders are too concerned about what's on Twitter. Uh, you know, Twitter is such a small part of the universe. Um, and I think we just need to get them. We talked about this earlier as a sure. kids. We need to get them to put that away. Uh, and to focus on what is true and recognize the American people will reward them for it. 
call me hopelessly naive on that front, but I think the American people will reward them for it. The majority of the American people by far see China as a threat. They recognize this. They feel like the political class is disconnected to them. A person who can connect with the American people on this issue, to my mind, will have a very bright political future. And we just need to encourage people to see that. Uh, Peter, I, I hope you get very well compensated for the book Red Hand, but <laughs> I know that's not why you, you right. did this. Right. What is your hope? What do you hope this book turns into? It's the beginning of a movement. Um, uh, look, I'm, I'm overwhelmed and thankful for people that have bought the book, and, and I appreciate that very much. We put a lot of hard work into it. To me, I want it to be the beginning of a movement. Uh, there are other books I know that are going to be coming out related on this theme. I want there to be a real attitude in Washington, D.C., on Capitol Hill of getting together people that don't agree on other issues, but to say China's a threat, we have to deal with this problem. I'm going to be meeting with people on Capitol Hill to do that. I'm going to continue to encourage uh, uh, people on the other side of the aisle that I might not agree with on other issues uh, to come forward and to work in common purpose. And I do feel this sense that the book is more than a book. It's the beginning of a movement. This is the existential threat we face. Many of the internal battles we are having in this country yeah. related to COVID, related to woke culture, related to you know addiction to social media is linked, is yeah. part of this larger battle that we have with China. Uh, that's a perfect way to, 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 to round out this one. As you, you all can tell, I got through about 30% of my questions. So, uh, and it's all in the book. Everything's in the book, Red Handed by Peter Schweitzer. Peter, it really is a pleasure to call you a colleague and congratulations on the great awesome. work and amen to that. Let's make a movement out of this. Great. Got American parts. I got American faith in America's heart. Thanks to Greg Evan for putting this together and the gracious people over at the Government Accountability Institute that helped me record this and provide the venue. All good stuff. Love Peter and pick up Red Handed. It's a can't miss and must read. Great gift if you got a gift occasion coming up. And thanks for all of you for listening to the Breitbart News Daily Podcast. We'll catch you next time. Apologize.